Hey, good morning, everybody. It is, uh, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here again this morning. You know, every time I, I, I take my uh, mask off, and I did it down there while I was getting ready to come up, I feel like I have to do an apologetic for this thing that's on my face. And especially when I preach here, because it's only like every month that I preach here, and it's like some of you are thinking, man, you need to stop that now, because pretty soon that's going to be taking over all over the place. Hey, just uh, um, this, uh, my, my uh, uh, had an interesting situation. So we were working with a bunch of, uh, a number of youth workers. Our organization works with youth workers all over the place. We were doing a Zoom call with youth workers from Ontario, and, and I'd been bored during the pandemic, so I started growing this. And some of you, you wear it. You, you, can, you can wear the stash so wonderfully well. You've done it for a long time. Way to go. My wife does not think I can wear this very well, which is problematic. But here's the deal. The best I've got from my wife so far, by the way, is that I love that you love your stash. That's the best I've got so far. That's not bad. So anyways, what happens is I'm on a Zoom call with a number of youth workers from Ontario. And uh, there's this young lady, her name is Laura Bronson. She's a wonderful youth worker in Ontario. And she goes, Sid, could I turn your mustache into a fundraiser? And without thinking, I'm like, yes. You know, so I said yes. And so she launched this uh, fundraiser online called Shave It or Save It. And the whole idea was people could donate to either shave the stash or save the stash. And, and here's the deal. Our organization is doing a tour across Canada to train and, and encourage and equip youth workers to better disciple kids. We're doing <laughs> about 22 stops and 16 days, so it's this crazy blitz right across the country. Our plan had been to do it in April, so then, of course, we pivoted. Our next plan was to do it in June, and the, the idea was that if people donated enough for me to save my mustache, when I came to Ontario in June, we would shave it. So the work she's doing is she wanted to get the kids, so she started church at skate parks while the pandemic was on, since you couldn't meet inside, and so she's doing this wonderful work of sharing the gospel with kids at skate parks. It's just really cool. I love it, so I said, I'm in. And then I thought to myself, both my wife and I would find our friends who are serious about giving and we're going to deal with this issue. And so we would raise enough money to shave it. Obviously, that would not be a problem. Two things happen. Number one, my friends thought it would be a great joke for me to carry this mustache until I got to Ontario. And so they literally gave thousands of dollars to save the mustache until we got to Ontario. That was the first problem. I remember when they did it, they thought it was so funny. I thought for sure I had it on lockdown. Boom, they, they nailed it. I was like, oh no. Second joke is that we are no longer, of course, going to Ontario in June. We're going in the end of October. And so <laughs> this, this thing is here to stay for a long time. And I was really excited. I got to do um, Amaranta and Kyle's wedding. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they gave me mustache wax as my gift for doing it. So I'm, I'm really fascinated about what's going to take place. There you go. There's the update. We'll give you the monthly update as we go uh, when we're back here to preach again, but we'll make it much quicker next time. Okay. Hey, we're, um, we're in First Peter, and uh, what a great book for us to be studying. I mean, Peter is a great book to be studying Anytime, But I think especially in a time such as this, it's, it, it, is, it is really important. You know, how do, we, how do we live in the midst of types of suffering? You know, pressures, stresses, you know, whatever they are. And, and you know, it's interesting because I think you know, when I reflect on things that are happening in other parts of the world, our suffering is real. But, you know, comparatively speaking, 
um, you know, you know, it feels like we're in a, in a very different category compared uh, to many others. When I was speaking with my friends who run an orphanage down in Columbia, and they spoke about the type of isolation that people were living in there and the type of poverty they were living in there, um, you know, I thought, oh, we don't, we don't have it as bad. We did a podcast the other day with my friends from Canadian Food, Brain, food Banks, uh, Food Grains, food grain, Canadian Food Grains Bank, and um, they talked about the kind of global hunger that has taken place through this pandemic and what's taking place in other parts of the world. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm not experiencing that here. And it's true. This is true. There are people who are experiencing suffering in ways more significant than ours. But the other part of the reality is, is that this is our, the suffering that you experience now in the place you are is your suffering. That's true. And the principles are still the same in terms of how we endure, persevere, or live resilient lives in the midst of it. And then, of course, the other question I think that many might ask is, Sid, you know, Peter is actually speaking to the church who is suffering for their beliefs. And I would say you're right, um, but the temptation of that type of suffering can still be similar to the temptation we live in other types of suffering, which is ultimately the temptation to place our faith in something other than Jesus Christ to shift to something other that might release us or give us a pause from the suffering we find ourselves in in this moment. So the evil one is always at work using whatever type of suffering he can to move our faith from Jesus Christ. That's true. So the question then that Peter is trying to answer for the people specifically in the context he's talking to and the same question that, that we're trying to have answered here, you know, is how do we stand? How do we remain firm? How do we remain resilient in our faith to the life that Christ is calling us to live, even in the midst of the suffering that we're enduring? And so today we're going to specifically look at 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through to 11. So if you have your Bibles, feel free and point there. You know what, um, gentlemen in the back, I apologize. I have misplaced my clicker. So, you know, if you can just go ahead and, and you can already jump to the next slide. There's only three slides there. I'll just, I'll kind of acknowledge it as we go. That's great. Um, the main point that I want to hit today is this, that we suffer well when we suffer like Jesus for Jesus, okay? And so, the, you know, the, the question is, how, you know, how do we suffer well? That's the, that's the question that we want to answer specifically from the text today. I have a friend, his name is Grant, and I think I've mentioned him here before. Grant is, in many ways, he's kind of one of my favorite people. He's mysterious in so many ways. When I first met Grant, um, I saw him, he's kind of, we were, we were in a large room of youth workers, and his wife was a youth worker, but he was kind of standing at the back observing the area, you know, kind of scanning the, the environment and he, he looked a little bit closed off but pretty sharp well put together and I remember when I saw him I thought to myself that guy looks a lot like James Bond and then when I met him I realized he actually is a lot like James Bond he was part of the secret service back in the day so he used to protect the presidents in the United States and he no longer protects presidents in the United States he's now the head of security for a large company um, out of Texas and and, uh, and so he's engaged in this type of life and so I would often ask him all you know sorts of questions to try to hear his stories, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he was telling me about when their, their team would go in, into competitions and compete against other security or service teams from other countries. And I asked him the question, I said, like, like who are the best? Who are the best? Which teams are the best? Which countries kind of stand out? And, and what makes a great you know, security or secret service team really good? And I'll never forget when he looked at me and he just said, you know, the countries whose teams are the best are the ones who suffer well. They suffer well. They know how to suffer. You know, up to, um, up to that point, I'd always had this vision that I could be like a really good kind of special forces, secret service type agent. You know what I mean? Like, 
I've watched a lot of action movies and I've always felt like, you know, I kind of resonate most with, with like Sylvester Stallone or Bruce Willis or any number of the action heroes of, of my generation. That's kind of like, those are my people, you know, and, until that moment. When Grant said that, you know, something in me just kind of shifted. Up till that point, for some reason, it never dawned on me that true heroes, the best heroes, they suffer well. And the, the problem is I just don't like suffering, you know? <laughs> you know, um, I don't think suffering well comes naturally to many people. Um, as human beings, we are hardwired to pursue pleasure over pain. Uh, but the problem is that as human beings, we live in a broken world. So suffering is inevitable, right? You know, you know we appropriately look forward to, to moving through this season of the pandemic that we found ourselves in. And we often talk of the hope of what's next. And, you know, I remember in 2020, I used to speak of the hope of 2021 and what would be next. And it's appropriate for us to speak about these hopes of what's next. But the truth of the matter is that even when we're through this and engage in whatever's on the other side of this, because of sin, because of the brokenness of humanity and the brokenness of creation, we will still find ourselves in environments where we have to deal with suffering and difficulty because creation is broken. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, this is the reality that we live in. Creation is broken. And for followers of Christ, you know, the idea of suffering has an even more significant reality to it. As, as followers of Christ, um, it's inevitable that at some point, our values, our principles will continue to grow in tension with the values of our culture. And we feel that. We feel that reality that, that our values as a body of Christ, the things that we believe to be true, the idea of identity being, being, ex, being exclusively experienced in the person of Jesus Christ, that, that authority in our lives is under the person who has created us and has died for us, that, that we believe in the authority of Scripture and we live underneath that reality because Scripture is the words of Jesus to us, the place where we understand and know who he is, and so we give him a authority by living under this reality and we know that this creates a real tension in the culture that we're in because the values of culture in many ways are at odds with the values of what it means to be following after Christ and so the truth is suffering's inevitable that's that's that that that's true that's the reality and so you know the question of course is that how do we suffer well as followers of Christ and this is what Peter in general is trying to engage, not just how do we suffer well, but how do we live well in the midst of the difficulty? How do we become strong, resilient? How can we be established even in the midst of the difficulty? And here in particular, he speaks to a few realities that, that, that we need to embrace if we're going to to suffer well in the midst of this time that we find ourselves in. And, and the point that I want to make again, the main point that I want to make is that you suffer well when you suffer like Jesus and for Jesus. So let's quickly read through the first few verses in 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you want, you can go ahead and you can hit that first slide again. That'd be great. It says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join in with them in the flood of debauchery, and, the, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, so first, how do we, how do we suffer well in the midst of the space that we're in? Here's the first thing that we need to do. I think we need, the first thing we have to do is we need to think well. We need to remember who we follow. Listen to what Peter says in verse one. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. By the way, that word therefore is a great word in the scriptures. Every time you, you see the word therefore, you should pause, circle it, underline it, and then look to what it points to. Because as followers of Christ, here's what's really beautiful. What we believe, the way that we live, the way that we are supposed to be is always rooted in a reality. Therefore, because this is true, objectively of us, objectively of how we feel, objectively of how we think, therefore, because of this, then we can do this. There's something rooted. There's something stable. There's something strong. Our resilience is founded on something that is true, no matter what we feel or think in the moment. There's something sound there that we've been given. So since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He says, okay, there's this battle that we need to do, this preparation that we need to engage. And the primary preparation we need to engage is this preparation of the mind, how we think. Most of the battle as followers of Christ is actually here. This is where it begins. And what Peter says is we need to arm ourselves. We need to be, we need to be ready to go. And this arming of ourselves is like this military term, this preparation, this, this, this idea that we can respond quickly, immediately, powerfully, that, that we're armed and ready to, to move in the, in the moment. Now, I don't have too many good like military illustrations. I'm, I grew up in a Mennonite home. The, the whole military illustration thing wasn't really kind of the public deal that we jumped into. So I was thinking to myself, what illustration do I have of being armed? of being uh, being ready to to activate and and I thought about this um from about grade six all the way to grade 11 one of the unique experiences of my life was in that time frame I can never once remember putting on a pair of jeans okay like jeans are by far the most like popular piece of clothing that people wear pretty much globally like close maybe not quite but close right and in those like six years I never once put on a pair of jeans okay why why didn't I once put that on and I remember thinking back over that why was that and it was because of this moment beginning of grade six my dad played ball with a local like fastball team and and they were playing an exhibition game against another town that they were actually friends with but they were going to have this exhibition game it was a Sunday afternoon I remember that and I was in the stands watching and for some reason, my dad's team was missing a player. They were short. And I remember he turned to me and he said, Sid, we need you to play. You're in. And I remember in that moment being shocked and embarrassed because I was wearing jeans and I wasn't prepared to play ball. And somehow in my mind, you could not play ball in jeans. It had to be sweats. That was like the old baseball pants, sweats. That was the only option. And I remember being so embarrassed because I wasn't ready to play. And in that moment, I made a vow that I would never not be ready to play again if ever I was asked to play a game of baseball. And you know, I mean, the, the situations are endless. Like you could get asked at class, at church, you know, while you're driving, like obviously. So I was prepared. So I made this commitment, this vow that I would never be unprepared for that moment. Didn't wear a pair of jeans again until grade 11. And then I realized that there was just kind of few times when you're going to be asked to play ball. So we made that shift. That was a good win for us. Love that, right? So 
or armed. And this is what Peter is saying to us. He's saying, hey, you need to arm yourselves. You need to get yourselves ready. But the arming is the arming of the mind. And it's generally not something you do once you're in it. You can do it when you're in it. But arming yourself, preparing is generally something you do before you're in it. This is the constant work of preparation. He says, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. Okay, so what kind of thinking is he asking us to arm ourselves with? He says, the same way of thinking is this reality that Christ has suffered in the flesh. He says, this is what you need to be thinking about. You need to be preparing yourself for the suffering that's coming by enlarging your vision of Jesus. By enlarging your understanding of the value of the beauty of the supremacy of Jesus, by, by making him your treasure. And the place that you see the beauty of Jesus most clearly is his work on the cross. This is the place where he came for us, where he sacrificed for us, where he expressed the infinite nature of his love for us. This is the work he did for us. This isn't just like the example. This is the empowerment of the way that we're called to live. It's through Jesus on the cross, right? You know, we talk a lot about Jesus as our Savior, and we should. We should talk about that. We talk a lot about Jesus as our Lord, and if you're someone who's grown up in church, you understand these terms, they make sense to you, you go, yeah, we should talk about that. But I think that what we need to talk more about is the idea of Jesus as our treasure, as being the most significant reality that we have, that nothing compares to the reality of Jesus Christ. Because when we see this, then by very definition, when suffering takes things that are important from us and that's real and we're threatened and we're left alone, even in the midst of the tears which are real, we can still be okay because the one thing that suffering can't take from us is our greatest treasure and that's Christ. And so we meditate on that. In fact, what Peter seems to say is that when we see Jesus as the treasure we ought, then it's in the midst of suffering that actually locks in our relationship with Jesus. It's actually the suffering that enables us to come to this place of actually experiencing him, acknowledging him as the greatest thing that we ever had. Listen to what he says here. He says, in the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So there's a couple of commentaries on what that means. A couple of ideas. The first idea is that when Peter says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that the whoever is referring back to Christ, that he is the one who has suffered in the flesh and now has brought a cease, ceasing to sin. The, the problem for me with that idea, of course, is that this idea that the one who suffered has ceased from sin means that obviously that person was sinning at some point in time. And, and so I struggle with that. You got to wrestle and kind of move things a little bit to get there. I think, I think the other interpretation that I hear a lot is this idea that whoever has suffered, whichever people have suffered, have ceased from sin in the sense that sin no longer owns them the way it did before that moment. That moment of suffering was a choice to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to be okay with the suffering because Jesus is the most significant reality I have. So whatever I lose, even though it's hard, the tears are real, that, that nothing compares. I can't lose Jesus. So I'm good. I'm good with the suffering because I can't lose Jesus. And suffering, suffering is a strong statement against sin in our lives. It's a statement that says that sin no longer has control over us. Jesus has control over us. Whatever pleasure I was getting from sin, from the affirmation of others, it's nothing compared to living in solidarity with Jesus. 
And so he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer but, uh, for human passions, but now for the will of God. And we say, that's done. I'm in. No matter how much time I've spent over there, I'm done with that because I've got something better. I've got God's will. I've got the person of Jesus Christ in his way. And I'm in with that. I can't lose that. It's the greatest treasure I have. You know, um, last couple of weeks, actually a couple of months, we've been involved with um, Alpha as an organization in a research project that they've been doing with Barna. And they've been looking at Gen Z's and, and Gen Z's perspective on evangelism. And Gen Z's are the generation that was born kind of, you know, mid-90s to late-90s, leaving university now. A number of our, of our people here in our church are, are right in that category. And, and I am I'm privileged to be able to spend lots of time working with Gen Z's. Both my boys would be there. And what Barna did is they surveyed a 1,500 Gen Z's in Canada and, you know, asked those who identified or affiliated as Christians what they thought of evangelism. And there was lots of, you know, exciting things that we heard back, things like a desire to share faith with others, a calmness in sharing faith with others, a real openness to that that was really, that was great. But there was also a few troubling things. And one of the things that was interesting to me was, was this stat that they discovered that 44% of Gen Zs say it is wrong to share one's personal belief with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share that same faith. They found that 44% of Christian Gen Z's say it's wrong to share your personal belief with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And I thought, what would cause that? And I think there's lots of things that could cause that, but I think at the very foundation, what causes that is that we don't really treasure Jesus the way we should. Because if we really saw that Jesus was the most significant life-giving reality that any human being could experience, if we really believed that Jesus was the way through suffering, the way to restoration, recreation, redemption, if we really believed that Jesus is, is, what it, is the essence of what it means to have abundant life, we were made for Jesus, that every human being was made by Jesus, was made for Jesus. If we really treasured Jesus for who he was, we would, we would die to have people place their faith in Jesus Christ, wouldn't we? I'm not sure the issue is that we don't see him as savior or we don't see him as Lord. I wonder if the issue is we don't see him as our treasure. And I think that's the first thing that Peter's speaking about. He's, he says, we've got to arm ourselves with this way of thinking that Jesus is greater than anything. And when we suffer now, it breaks from sin and it allows us to experience an even deeper relationship with Christ in this space. But not only for now, but also for eternity. Listen to what he says. He goes on and he says this, for the time that has passed, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join in with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. It says that because we won't join in with the types of activities that are going on around us, people are looking at us. They're like, man, you're weird, man. In fact, that's bothering me. It says that they malign, they attack, they, they move against because our values begin to not line up with the same values that are in culture. And then it says in this verse five, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and dead. It says, even though we suffer, we can entrust our suffering to God who will do justly. And he will do justly. Justice will be served. So we entrust that. That's not ours to take. We entrust that to God. So we don't have to attack back. We surrender that over to the Lord. And then he says this. He says, um, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And here's what I think he's speaking about. He's talking about the reality that Jesus was preached to people who are dead now, but weren't dead before. They experienced the gospel. They made Christ their treasure. And now they're living in the spirit the way that God does. They're actually experiencing eternal life. There's something greater coming. And here's what he's saying to us, that even though we suffer now, if Christ is our treasure, if we are in solidarity with Christ, not only do we experience his intimacy now, but we have the hope and reality of all eternity to come. And all he, that what we suffer here is, you know, he just says over and over again, it's nothing compared to what's to come. It's not easy to see, but this is true. And isn't this amazing what he says here as well, that this is the Christ who preached to those who were causing the suffering? That again, we leave justice up to God, but what he asks us to do following in his way is we radically go forward and bring the life-giving reality of Christ to those who are desperately in need, even if they're our enemies. And this is the way. This is the way we live well in the midst of suffering. We suffer well like Jesus and for Jesus. He is the very center of our thinking. We're prepared to move in this journey, okay? So we follow hard after Christ. Second, keep going, hit the next slide. Following Jesus. So we go on that not only do we, do we engage the one whom we follow, but we prepare to follow Jesus well in the midst of this. So listen to what he says. He goes on in verse seven. And now he shifts gears a little bit. He says this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There it again. There, there's that word, therefore. Here's what he's saying. Here's the reality. The end is at hand. At any time, Christ could come back. We don't know how long we have. We just know it could be any time. And so then he says there's a way for us to be in the midst of this. Now, there's a contrast happening here, right? In the first six verses, he talked about the reality of what was happening in culture. People were engaging in all sorts of activities that felt good, fulfilling in the moment. They were disengaging from reality. They were removing themselves from reality and engaging in this partying and this way of, of living, this, this way to, to kind of you know, dis, be, be, uh, disengage from what's happening in the here and now. And it's interesting, you know, I think sometimes as, as followers of Christ, I've heard people when they talk about teenagers and ministry to youth, they've said things like, hey, you know what, we need to show the world that we can have better fun than what the world has, right? Like as Christians, we need to show that we should have better fun. We should disengage from reality in maybe more fun ways. And I know that's not always what we mean, but it kind of comes across that way. Christ actually says something very different. What, what Peter calls us to is not to disengage from reality, but to become very aware of reality and then engage in the struggles and problems that we find in this reality that we're to actually become the most thoughtful of people, the most considerate of people. We don't run away from the brokenness. We lean into the brokenness. We understand the brokenness. He says that we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded. You know, that word sober-minded is the same word that's used in the story of the demoniac in Mark 5 and Luke 8, right? And then just real quickly, the story is of this individual who night and day was among tombs and in the hills he would cry and cut himself with stones. But when Jesus came to him, he healed him. And the people, when they found him after Jesus had healed him, they found him seated, clothed, and clear-minded. He was, he was sober-minded. That's the same word that we have here. He was fully in touch with reality. 
And this is what Peter says. He says that we don't disengage. We don't look for ways to be distracted from realities. Instead, we stop in light of what's taking place and we become, we become very aware of reality. We become aware of the reality where we're living. We don't hide from the brokenness. We don't hide from our own failings. We don't hide from history. We are sober-minded about what's going on. I was really confronted with that this week. You know, um, over the last, you know, week and a half, um, many of us, I'm sure, have been kind of wrestling with the revealings that took place as a result of the res- residential schools with the indigenous people, right? Especially in Kamloops, we found two, the, the remains of 215 children uh, in unmarked graves. And I got to be honest with you, for like, um, for a long time, I've chosen to kind of ignore this reality of the history that we have as part of our country. I don't want to deal with it. It's too much. It's, it, it's overwhelming. I want, to, I want to be distracted from that. I want to rather watch, I don't know, Netflix or surf or, right? It's kind of how we are. But this past week, I couldn't get away from it. And I had to start reading. I had to start fighting to understand. I was dropping my son off for a basketball practice that he had, the socially distanced basketball, however you do that, they do it. Um, and, I, and I saw my friend Michael there. My, Michael is, is First Nations and he's an RCMP officer. And so for the first time, I, I drove my car up to him and I just parked beside him and he's not a follower of Christ as far as I know. And I just said, Michael, I'm overwhelmed by what's taken place. Help me understand. What do I need to know? And he started to tell me his story. His, his dad had grown up in the, in the residential school. And, and whether that's exactly why his home was a really difficult, hard home where he grew up, I'm not, I don't know, but it was terrible. And he just started to speak to me of the reality of his people and what this spoke of. And, and I, just, I just had to listen. And he looked at me and he said, Sid, what if people came and grabbed your kids from your home? What would you do? And I, and you know, and it's, there's so much complexity to it and there's so much going on, but I just, I just, in that moment, I said, I can't avoid this. I have to, I have to understand. I have to lean in. Hey, you know what? When we talk with Gen Z's, not just in our country, but abroad, you know what we're hearing back? They're looking at us as the church and they're saying, do you have answers to the most pressing issues of our time? Do you have something to say about the things that are taking place in our country, in our, in, our, in our culture, in our world? Do you have something to say about the most pressing social issues of our time? Does the gospel address these realities? And if we don't become sober-minded and start wrestling with these things, and there's no easy answers, and it's overwhelming, I get it, but if we don't become sober-minded, there's a generation that's wondering if we have anything to offer at all. They really are. And it's okay if it's overwhelming. That's why he says we become sober-minded so that we can pray. Because we don't lean in on our strength or in our way of thinking. We lean in on the creator's strength and the creator's way of thinking and the creator's way of being. We tap into a power that is infinitely greater than our power. And that's what we have as the body of Christ. We're called to a time such as this. You know, it's interesting to me because I think one of the questions we ask is when this pandemic is over, will people come back into our churches? And we should ask that question. 
That's an okay question to ask, but I think there's a more significant question that we need to ask. When this pandemic is over, will the church go to the people? Will we go in new and deeper ways? Will we wrestle harder with the realities that are in front of us? Will we try to figure out ways to bring the gospel into this culture and this world that so desperately needs the reality of the culture, even when we feel like they're against us? He calls us to go. And I know in many ways we are, and it's happening, and that's beautiful, and we should celebrate that, but we need to continue to think of new ways because the need is so great. I talk to youth workers right now and they say the next two to three years are so significant when it comes to bringing the gospel to the next generation because the pressures, the fears, the anxieties, the mental health is so severe. We need something more. And this is our time. We get to almost have like this reboot, this restart to move in. And so that's what Peter calls us, even in the midst of the difficulty. He says we need to move. And so the third thing he says is that we need to sacrifice like Jesus. And listen to what he says. He goes on. He says this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Oh, we need to love. Oh, my, we, we, we need to love. As a church, we need to love. First, we need to love here, Right? There's so much to divide us in this time. There are so many conversations and topics that divide us to this time. But because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ, he says, we can now, like Christ has loved us, we can love others. We can, we can quickly forgive. We can quickly confess. We can quickly come back together again. Because of the gospel, the love needs to cover over a multitude of sins. And it has to start here. Jesus was so clear that one of the greatest apologetics to the faith is how we would love each other, right? And so the first thing he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And then he goes on and he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And it is so inconvenient to have people enter into our homes to feed, to give time, to give energy, to give resources. But he says, this is what we do. We reach out, we invite in, we become hospitable. We accept inconvenience. Inconvenience is actually an expression of our identity. This is who we are, and this is how we live with others. We become hospitable, and then as each has received a gift, we use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. We own the reality that God has given each of us gifts, skills, and abilities. We quit competing, we quit comparing with each other, and instead we steward what we have for the sake of meeting the needs of other people. But we don't do it on our strength and in our way. We can't. We don't have enough. We're already under pressure ourselves, right? That's why this, this, this stuff feels really overwhelming. It's like, hey, like I'm just trying to make it through myself. How do I move forward? We move forward when it's not about presenting us. It's about presenting Jesus in his way, in his strength. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. We need his truth. We need the reality of what actually is. We have to help people understand that Jesus is with us. He understands us. We need to understand that he is sovereignly and powerfully over us, that he is not confused by the world that we are in, but rather he is over it. He is directing. He is wise. He knows what steps we need to take. And he is, in his wisdom, he has placed us in a time such as this. In his wisdom, he has placed us in a time such as this. And he is good. 
And he, he is good for us. We trust that he is good. And he is leading us in his way. And so we move forward under his words, that reality, but also we move under his strength, the strength that he supplies. We invite the spirit to empower, to enable. We rest in his presence and we are renewed and we take the time to rest because we have to do that. We remain still before the father. We allow him to do that renewing work in us. And then not knowing if we have what it takes to take that step, we take the step. And then God, he shows up. And he does things that we don't even expect him to do because we are just fighting to be faithful. And in that moment, instead of looking at ourselves and taking a selfie and telling the world how great we are, instead, the only option we have is to go how great God is. Look how great God is. Look what he did. Because the world doesn't need more of us. It needs more of Jesus. But he has chosen to use us to bring Jesus to the world, right? He's chosen to use us. And so, and so we continue to move by his grace, becoming conduits of his grace. We don't do what's natural. We don't do what comes natural when we are under pressure, when we are suffering, when it's hard. We don't do what's natural. We do what's supernatural. We do what's supernatural by the power of the supernatural, by the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel works and changes lives. Here's the reality. We suffer well. We live well in the midst of suffering when we suffer like Jesus and we suffer for Jesus. So what do we do? What's the application? I think the application, I mean, we've heard this is all about application, that we need to continue to fight to do. We have to, we have to spend time renewing, being renewed, but we need to, we need to move forward. This is, this is that God has called us to a time such as this. We wouldn't breathe. We wouldn't be here if God didn't have a plan for us here. So we've been called to this space. Complicated space? Absolutely. When I talk to young leaders, I say to them, hey, in my lifetime, I haven't been in a more complicated space to lead. That's Okay. That's okay. We trust that God has called us to this time, so we just take the next step, trusting he will continue to direct. So what do we do? I think there's two things we need to do. Number one, we need to evaluate ourselves. And there's two things. We need to evaluate ourselves in terms of what are we thinking, you know? What are we thinking? What are we meditating on? Is most of what we're thinking, what we're meditating on, is it based around like escapism? Are we spending lots of time in things that just seem to pull us out of the moment? that pull us out of the difficulties. And again, we need space and time to restore, renew, but, but we're, we're not called to escape. We're called to be present, but we need to be present with the right vision of the creator. We need to be present with a right understanding of the gospel. We need to be present with a right kingdom way of being as seen in the reality of Jesus Christ. We need to meditate there. We need to think there. We need to arm ourselves with the thinking of the reality of Jesus Christ. We need to renew our minds. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then we need to evaluate what we're doing. Are we engaging others or do we simply expect others to engage us? And how are we engaging others? You know, how are we doing it? Are we just defensive, self-protective, attacking? Are we known more by what we're against than what we're for? Or are we following Jesus and are we engaging with love? 
with hospitality, with service. Because here's the point. We suffer well when we suffer like Jesus and we suffer for Jesus. And this is what we have been called to, to a time such as this. Father, I love you. And I thank you for who you are. I thank you that, um, oh man, Lord, like none of us pursue suffering. That's not natural in us to want to move to suffering. We didn't, we don't want to be in seasons like this. That's not our desire, but you have called us into this time. If that were not true, we wouldn't be here. And so we want to live well in this time. Uh, we want to both experience you in us and we want to experience what it is to be a conduit of grace of you through us to others. And Lord, I really do believe that this is a really important moment for your bride, for the church. I, I believe that we have such an opportunity here, Lord, to, to, to really make a difference, to bring you glory. That's what that, to, to help people see what they were made for, what they actually need more than anything. It's you. It's you. And we have this opportunity. I pray that you would give us wisdom. You would give us discipline. Uh, you would give us restoration, Lord. You would give us unity. Oh, Jesus, I pray that you would give us unity so that we could be people of, of cultural reshaping, of life-giving in the place where you have called us. I pray this for your glory, for our joy in your name. Amen.